welcome to this week's Treasury Career Corner podcast, where I interview treasury professionals about their treasury careers. Each and every week, I talk to treasurers about how they've built their careers, where they are now, and where they see both themselves and the treasury profession going to next. In this week's show, delighted to be joined by Steve Rosenthal, Group Treasurer at Broadridge Financial Solutions. Now, Broadridge Financial Solutions are a publicly listed corporate services company. Originally founded in 2007, they span out from ADP, or Automatic Data Processing. And since they became independent back in uh, 07, they've grown, in, grown into a global fintech uh, company with over $4 billion in revenues, recognized and part, they partner with some of the world's leading companies and financial institutions, handling millions of trades every day, trillions of dollars, support communications, over known in over 75%, for instance, of North American households, manager share, you know, manage shareholder voting, lots of different things out there. But actually, I'm going to let Steve explain a little bit more about that. Sure. So thanks very much, Mike, and I'm very happy to be with you today. So I can take you back. I did my undergraduate work at the State University of New York at Albany, and I did uh, some graduate work at Bridgewater State, which is part of the University of Massachusetts state systems, part of UMass Boston. So I did not take the conventional route through Treasury. All of my degrees are in psychology and clinical psychology, so definitely not the conventional route. But I was in an externship program at Bridgewater State University right outside of Boston. Certain issues took me uh, away from my uh, doctoral thesis and back into New York. And at the time, I was actually working at health clubs teaching martial arts. I had always done martial arts through my life and bumped into a, a person who I'd gotten very friendly with who started a conversation conversation with me. It had always been around our, our classes and asked me what I wanted to do with my life. This is the early 90s, Mike. And so gave him kind of my story. He wound up being a senior executive at Bear Stearns and literally asked me to meet him in his office. So I put on the suit and tie, met him in, the, in his office, not knowing what to expect. And before I knew it, I was part of really what was considered at the time an elite management training program and so started there in the management training program and really learned everything broker-dealer and investment banking at back office at the time. One of the pieces of that track was folks came from the Treasury organization, talked a little bit about what they do. I would tell you that it's it, it was love at first sight and uh, <laughs> I was... <laughs> Yeah, it, right. And and I was enamored with it. I'd always loved markets and who doesn't love money? And so I got to spend some time with the Treasury folks there. And when an opening opened up, they actually recruited me to be part of their organization right out of the management training program. And again, this is the early 90s. I then was extremely fortunate because they invested a tremendous amount of time, energy and money in me, catching me up on any type of class or education, financial services, I took advantage of all those opportunities. So really became a subject matter expert, I think, faster than either they or I thought. And Treasury was clearly going to be my career. Mm. And then you got in there and you fell in love with Treasury, as we all do. You know, I've done it 22 years plus. What did you... 
Well, what, what caused you to fall in love? What, what was it you saw that you could have all these touch points within the organization or what was it that thought, yeah, treasury is the place for me? At the time, you know, you think you know what you're getting into, but you, you really don't until you live it. I, I think it was the whole notion of being a, being really the central nervous system for the company, and that's how those people really designed it. The, the management of the company's capital structure, financing, money movement, you know, dealing with all the cash every day was, to me, a really excellent proposition. Mm. And I got really excited about it right away. And that's without even knowing what the day-to-day was going to be like. And I can tell you that from there, my passion really only grew. And with that, you say it grew. You were there for five years. So you started in junior position as such. You you come in and you grow and grow and grow. And then you made a move to Morgan Stanley. How did, you know, it's, it's quite diverse. You know, I've recruited a number of banking roles in the past, more as you've had group treasury roles and things like that, and you try and get, you know, we sometimes get banking sales because can you help me? No, no, I do group treasury, banking, ALM, group risk and things like that. But, you know, you were looking after the bank's money and then you made the move across to Morgan Stanley, again, an ex-client and, you know, back in those days, massive treasury teams. What was it like working for their treasury and looking after the bank's money there? Well, it was it was really very different. So, you know, at Bear Stearns, the I, I was exposed significantly to everything credit and liquidity, understanding repo, credit lines, overdraft facilities, large revolving credit facilities, and letters of credit portfolios. And Bear Stearns' culture was much more senior directed. They kind of ran in fiefdoms, quite frankly, and the senior managing directors of the different organizations or those fiefdoms really ruled the roost. I was recruited to go to Morgan Stanley and to fill a new role uh, originally, which was to, which was really a bank relations role that managed bank relations such that we we matched all the service and product necessary for all the business units. So it was really, there, there was a lot of liaison type of role to it, but it was pure culture shock because Morgan Stanley was exactly the opposite of Bear Stearns. Morgan Stanley was much more bureaucratic, a bureaucracy with a lot of checks and balances, a lot of group think. And so there was a lot of thought put into all the different agenda and strategic direction, as well as as well as tactical operations. But the decision making was, as you might expect, a lot slower mm-hmm. and a lot more architectural. So I could tell you that it was pure culture shock. But looking back, having experienced the thinking and culture of Bear Stearns and then the more bureaucratic way of organization with Morgan Stanley has really helped me and really helped me kind of evolve into both positive and negative modeling on what I thought worked in different cultures and environments. So at Morgan Stanley in the relationship role, I was able to really round out my treasury experience and expertise by delving a lot into cash management and a lot of different cash services and products on the bank relationship side. So by the time my tenure at Morgan Stanley had ended, I had the credit and liquidity debt structuring background at Bear Stearns and then the cash management and relationship type of experience from Morgan Stanley. Steve, I just want to dig 
back into that about the contrast between the two firms to, to put this in context for list, people listening they might say oh you know you got frustrated then at Morgan Stanley and stuff you were five six years at Bear Stearns you were six years at Morgan Stanley so it wasn't oh no that's it got frustrated and left how did you deal with those two different structures you're a treasury dude you know you're doing your treasury work you're doing all this but how did you then navigate through that in a very different culture you know did you just well I'm going to push this through or how do you do it? Cause there'll be people listening again going, hang on, I do that. Or that sounds familiar. You know, so how did you cope with those things? It certainly was a challenge. You know, I think the way to, the way that I coped with it was to build the relationships necessary to understand where the places really dictated that I conform and then also where I can add value in terms of innovation and bring some other types of expertise to the table to push ideas, new ideas on what was a very mature organization. And Mike, that's what they really wanted me to do at the end of the day. They, they wanted me to push the envelope and be innovative and take some, you know, some of the thinking that they had related to relationships and products. Steve, let me pause you there. Look, how can you innovate in a super tanker? You know, you explain that. You know, how can you? You can't do that. This is a big. It's a big global bank. You can't be innovative in an environment like that. That's impossible. Yeah, it's so just from experience, it's not impossible. Okay. It's it's a challenge. It's hard. And I think the first thing to do is to gain credibility. And in, in order to gain credibility, you have to build those relationships. You have to show your subject matter expertise. You have to, there is, you know, a sort of confidence and gravitas that I think as you gain more seniority is necessary to bring your ideas forward. So, you know, I think, I think at first you pick and choose your spots, Mike. And as you pick and choose those spots and you gain success and that success is not framed always by you being right. It's sometimes it can be framed by you bringing a good idea to the table that may or may not be adopted, but is framed the right way, is honest in the right way and shows that you are being a critical thinker to the organization and the architectural design of the organization. So I think it's just picking, choosing your spots and building credibility. I, I would tell people that, yeah, you know, even in the most bureaucratic of organizations, you can have an impact. You can, you can make changes. You just have to do it in a thoughtful way. So you had two big box banks. You're going to carry on your life on these big super tanker type esque banks. You're going to carry on your global treasury career that way. And you thought, I know, let's do a brand new treasury setup for Broadridge. Or explain, if you would, for the listeners, who are Broadridge Financial Services? What do they do? What was then your entrance to Treasury there? So give us give us the run through of that. So again, I was I had become recruited at the time. There was a a full what they called at the time brokerage servicing unit as part of the large payroll provider ADP, and that brokerage servicing unit was being spun off, and I was being recruited. They needed a subject matter expert to really 
start a treasury organization from scratch with, you know, just with marry a, a bank account, quite frankly. So I will admit to you at first, I did not want to go. And I did love being at Morgan Stanley. And this was, you know, in 2007, early 2007. So right pre-financial crisis, my career at Morgan Stanley was taking off. I, I was making a large impact. I will admit that Broadridge put a, a really full court press on me and had the opportunity to live and work much closer. I live on Long Island. Our headquarters also resides in Long Island. And then I took a, a really a really different look at the opportunity. So how many treasury experts get the chance to start a treasury organization for a large public company from scratch and to do things exactly the way that you think they should be done to start fresh with a clean slate and build a treasury organization from the ground up. And, and, you know, when I thought, when I started to think about it that way, I got really excited and eventually chose to become part of the team and prepare Broadridge to become a a public company. So you went in, it's fresh it's fresh out of the box if that's the right way to do it you know how did you, what was your checklist you know how did you say right these are the again we'll have people listening going oh i've got an opportunity like that where did you start from so there was trial by fire mike i i I don't think I had what I would consider, you know, a very organized checklist at the beginning that had to be developed. We were spinning off with $690 million of debt. And my first order of business was, okay, how do we set up this capital structure, finance this debt, understand how the company should work in terms of our ratings? Are we an investment grade company? Do we want to be an investment grade company? How is that going to fit? into the general business business model. Remember that Broadridge, even though they were spinning off from ADP, it was a very mature business and with a business model that had a, a really great defensive moat around it, but it was quite complex. And to this day, Broadridge's business is complex. So we are basically known as a company that does proxy, but have grown into so much more than that. We have two main platforms. One is a governance platform where we service financial services, broker dealers and banks for much of their needs. And the other side, uh, the other large platform is technology and outsourcing, securities processing. We're also starting a third platform with wealth management. So Broridge has grown a tremendous amount. But getting back to the spin, it was capital structure. It was cash management, nuts and bolts, block and tackle until we got our feet under ourselves, making sure that the spin was successful and that we could service the company and set up the central nervous system so the so money could move. You know, some of the guys listening today, they they work for product companies, they work for widgets manufacturers, and their treasury issues are set one certain set. You're obviously much more financial services related. You know, overall the piece with treasury. I know that we spoke before, and you really enjoyed dealing with new people and new setups and everything else and all these new ideas coming at you. But, you know, just your basic treasury, how does it operate? Is, is cash cash? Is it exactly the same, a different, but just in a different format? How does it, how does it apply when you, you go to, like, the AFP conference and you describe what you do? And someone said, well, he's in financial services. Doesn't really, not very similar to my business. But you are, aren't you? Because, we, again, we talked about this. How, how does it cross into, you know, treasury and, a, you know, corporate sort of thing? 
rather than corporate financial services treasury? So we're a financial technology company that provides services and technology to banks, broker dealers, asset managers, and other financial services concerns and companies. So from that angle, you know, you would think about us as technology, but we're actually a lot more than that because we tend to get into other products and services peripherally to meet the needs of our client base, which which again is the greater financial services industry. The Treasury here is very capital structure based, but at the same time, the cash management aspects of our role vary. And that's because there are different types of business units that deal with significant amounts of fiduciary cash. For example, we own a transfer agent and we own a 401k asset servicing business where there's large amounts of assets under management and cash to deal with. Some of it is ERISA regulated cash. Other types of cash are obviously regulated by the SEC. So there's some nuance to the cash management aspects of this business as well. A lot of that business came through acquisition over the years. We didn't necessarily spin off with that business. But what it's shown you is the evolution of Treasury and how Treasury, the Treasury organization at Broadridge, had to grow and evolve, reinvent itself time and time again to, to make sure that we were meeting the needs and requirements of the company and its subsidiaries. There's been a consistent you know, reinventing of ourselves to make sure that we can do that. What the company that Broadridge was at the spin from ADP does not resemble in any way the company that Broadridge is today. Yeah, because it's just that evolution, the growth and everything else. Now, how has that changed in maybe people terms as well? Because then again, we talked about this, you know, you're very much, you're one of these, talk about loads of the shows that CFO say, look, you're our front man. You're, you're the, the scout in front of dealing with these, this slew of fresh ideas. How do you deal with that and then bring that back to your treasury setup and the people that you've got around you? So that that is such a relevant question, Mike. The, it won't surprise your audience at all that even through the significant growth, changing and evolution of Broadridge over the years, the treasury organization has not grown very much, right? In terms of resources, we're a very lean group and, you know, expected to set up significant scale as the company grows. Now we've experienced some growth, but certainly not anywhere in relevant ratio to our company's growth. So we've had to find ways to make sure that we were building our subject matter matter expertise, but not growing in terms of cost and people at the same rate that Broadridge was. And I'm happy to say that that's that's been the case. In terms of people, we tend to train athletes and not position players. So what I mean by that, we find really smart, really agile people through our own management training programs or throughout other areas of finance that have a significant interest in treasury. And we, when and we do usually have openings specifically on the junior level. We will transfer them into treasury and train them generically on every aspect of the treasury function. Once that's done, we marry that into the needs and requirements of the company such that that treasury athlete is now able to 
take their skills, their talent, and translate it into treasury skill to meet the needs of specifically Broadridge. So, you know, the position player would be somebody who becomes very deep in cash management or very deep in investment portfolios or very deep in debt structuring within the treasury framework. We don't do that. We train athletes. Our folks can gain expertise and understand all aspects of the treasury function. As they get more senior, they'll have a focus on one area or the other, but had been heavily trained throughout. And that's really helped us create the scale that we've needed to keep our costs down, but also to be able to reinvent ourselves and evolve because our folks are those treasury athletes. When you say cost down, what do you mean? Just not having really just very siloed people? Or, you know, I don't explain that. I don't understand it. So keeping costs down, meaning meaning adding people, you know, growing in terms of headcount, trying to keep the treasury organization lean and mean as we as we continue to evolve and and need and and learn new things as Broadridge continues to grow. And with that, sorry, you got me the, the, the pauses because I'm thinking, which is, doesn't happen often, as we know. You know, Steve and I talked before this call. How did you attract people? You know, how did you, because we've got a series of videos coming up and, uh, you know, I'm trying to get out there and explain to people, explain to clients, you you get it, which is fantastic. And people can hear through your voice and some of the things you're doing that you understand what you've got to do. The world has changed. People do, you know, one of the first articles is not about you anymore. It's about them. It's about writing an advert and the things that you do to try and attract people internally and externally so not just getting people to come into the function but you were recruiting both internally and externally from the sounds of it why do you, how did what was your sell on treasury you know when when people came to sit in the office and have a coffee and things like that how did you sell the treasury dream to those guys so internally, I think the best way to market treasury is to have a happy, productive, healthy work environment. And people see that. People are attracted to that type of environment. People get to see your management style and want to be a part of that, get to see the organizational design and want to be a part of that. From an internal perspective, whenever we've had the opportunity to look internally to add to our treasury organization, we've never really had to significantly recruit, those people have really come to us. And and I again, I do believe that when you have a, a healthy, happy, productive workplace, that internal recruiting for the most part will take care of itself. At the same time, there are aspects to, to, to treasury that are quite enigmatic within any organization, meaning that, you know, everybody looks at treasury, uh, well, those guys handle all the money. That's great. They handle all the money. And of course, we know that there's so much more to it than that. And the things that we do day over day, whether it's capital planning or investment decisioning, things like that, we get you know, a thousand feet wide and a thousand feet deep. And it's interesting when folks come to to sit with us and see what we do on a day-to-day basis, I think they get quite surprised at the the pervasiveness and kind of the wide purview that Treasury has. So all of that goes into a positive marketing dynamic such that internal recruitment, it's just not necessary for us or, or really prevalent. People do come to us looking for opportunities and it's quite flattering. We, you know, we really think, we think that's great. From an external perspective, that's different. And externally, I find that it's sometimes difficult to get the the people that not only have the treasury expertise, 
that we want and need, again, going back to the treasury athlete versus a treasury position player, but will they also fit into our culture? Sometimes I feel like the culture piece is the more important piece. Again, fitting in from a culture perspective, you know, creates a foundation of which, you know, learning, teaching and learning can succeed and thrive. So it's really the the external piece is a lot more tricky. And I think it's a lot easier to work with treasury recruiters who understand the treasury dynamic and much more than say an internal human resources recruiter uh, could ever do. And I think it's it's not necessarily a, a criticism of those guys because uh, you know I was trying to explain it to some you know someone outside of my industry yesterday and they were saying I mean, why is it? I said well because you know a lot of my treasury guys will hire one maybe two people a year some some corporates and smaller groups it might be you know one person every three years. So it's not something that an HR recruiter, you know, if they're recruiting an FP&A person, they're probably doing one a month, you know, and then you do one treasury person. People are like, oh, what, how, do, how does all these different things fit together? It's knowing what is, and I know that we talked about this, that, you know, what is good and bad in that person. It's not, you know, you can teach the skills, you can teach all those things, but, you know, you're never going to teach culture. You know, you, know you, you hire for fit and then you can train all the other technical things. And, uh, you know, going back to that, I know, Steve, you said about this, working with these smarter people around you, again, you talked about this, this was his phrase, not mine, and knowing what is good and bad in the world of Treasury, how do you sort of filter through that yourself and, you know, all these new things coming, you and the team? What's your sort of, your weather vane for it, if you like? I think there's a basic tenet and a very old saying that, you know, it's a really good idea to surround yourself with people smarter than you. And I would only add to that, that's not only a great idea, but you can't be scared of it, right? So, you know, surrounding yourself with folks that can really bring new and innovative ideas, look at things in a different way is extremely extremely important. One of the the ways that we manage our treasury organization creates a cultural basis. And the way that we think about that is we manage with loads of discipline, but not regimentation. So we're very disciplined in all of our processes and very disciplined in our modeling analytics and things like that, but we're not regimented with those things. So you don't have to do it my way to get to an answer. And, you know, I find that really senior treasury folks, but it's not just treasury folks, it's anybody getting set in your ways and being regimented is a sure way to destroy critical thinking. It's a sure way to destroy and stunt new and innovative ideas. So creating the discipline around your processes and your organization is critical, but not making it regimented is just as critical. And surrounding yourself with really smart people, use let them use let them use their minds, let them use their brains, don't stunt them by forcing the way that you do things on them and constantly be a teacher. Constantly be constantly share your expertise. You know, Mike, one of the questions that I'm constantly asked is how do you manage and deal with 
young people? How do you manage and deal with millennials? Don't you find them entitled or this and that? And and, and Mike, my answer is I don't necessarily find them entitled, but I, they do have a different way of working. And, you know, the days of leading by fear are long gone. Millennials and post-millennials do not respond to that type of organizational leadership. As a matter of fact, my experience is they really reject the strict hierarchical structure. They want to learn quickly. They want to gain experience in a short amount of time, which it's, it's many times is very hard to do. But once they gain some experience, they want a sense of empowerment. They tend to be quite agile in their learning, learning methodology. So, so, you know, I think that we need to empower. They're, they're looking for empowerment. They're looking to learn quickly. And, you know, the old broker dealer ways of creating fear and punishment as a result of a strict hierarchical structure is not the way to manage a team. And it's not going to result in a happy, productive environment. So what is is it, you know, you know, is it that you with those millennials, we provide everything they want and that I, I know some of the answers, you know, because this is what we do day in, day out. And we're recruiting for our clients and giving them advice again. This is one of the reasons I'm just, I think it comes back to my speech. I gave to the accidental keynote speaker. I, I was giving in Brussels a while ago, a few years ago. And I gave this example that my daughter, she's at university now, but she was getting one of her first jobs three years ago. She was a runner in a restaurant. And she was saying, you know, dad, you know, when I become this runner, I was like, yeah, I said, what else will I get? And I said, what do you mean? You just get paid and you do your job and you take the food to and from and make sure it's all set. No, no. In my, you know, I get my wages and will I get a pension? It's like you're 16, you know, but like, will I get discount? Will I get this? Will I, and it, but it wasn't a questioning as in, well, what will I get? You know, that I disgruntled. It was more a request for information. It was just what are they going to do for me? You know, it's much more uh, a responsibility placed on the employer that, look, I'm going to have two or three opportunities, even though I'm 16, 17, you know, right the way through, what are you going to do to make it enticing enough for me to join you, stay with you and, and develop with you? And I think that's, well, that's the biggest thing, the shift I think that, you know, when I started in it before it was, you got your wages and that was it, you were done. And you, you, if you weren't getting enough learning, you'd have to move. And the work market, employment market has changed. Is that what you've seen again? These guys aren't, in a, it's not an entitlement. It's more a, a questioning ethos, which I think is actually great in treasury terms, but do you find the same? I do. I think, you know, Mike, when, when we first started, I think everyone was just happy to have a job. Yeah. And, and you were, you were satisfied to have a job, happy to have a job. We're, you know, fighting the fight day, day in, day out. The old saying, climbing the corporate ladder, if you were in that type of environment, right? And so you were just happy to have a job. The folks these days getting into the workplace, that is not their, the way that they lean. It's, they're not just happy to have a job and they're looking for an environment 
of learning. And that's why I think it's important for folks in positions like I am as a treasurer to be a constant teacher. They respond. My experience is they really respond to that. Sharing your information, sharing your knowledge, sharing your expertise. I also think that these folks are looking for, to your point, Mike, they're looking for unique benefits. There's a much higher emphasis on the whole work-life dynamic than there ever has been before. We used to fit our life into work. And these folks, I think, have, and I think it's a healthy attitude, are looking to fit work into their life. And what are the unique benefits that I can have here versus somewhere else that help me gain that goal? How do I fit work into my life? And and so we, you constantly have to have your finger on the pulse. Now, this is part, you know, the organization that you lead. In my case, it's treasury and risk and also our human resources departments and organizations to come up with the unique benefits that will attract and retain talent over time. And, and, and again, these things evolve, but I'm going to go back to saying these folks want to fit work into their lives and not the other way around. Perfect. Steve, we're coming to the end of today's show, and we said this back at the beginning, say every week as well, that what I like to do is people then will put your details in the show notes and how to connect with you. I literally, I could carry on for another 10, 15, 20 minutes. I could keep talking about this. I'd love to, you know, getting into these discussions, but we can't because... Our show lasts about 30 to 40 minutes. It's people's commute time. We know they get into the office and everything else, so we want to respect that. But I think there are still some golden nuggets there. So looking back over your career, and they, people look at your, and they'll connect to you on LinkedIn and things, you'll see it. What are the top tips you're going to give out? I mean, we've given some brilliant ones there, but maybe just sort of to percolate those into the sort of top two or three what are you going to say to people listening today as they get to their desk? They're saying, you know, I'm here with my team. I'm just going to jot down these notes. And actually, that's what I should be doing with these guys today. What are you going to say? So the, the way I would give advice is on all levels of your, at, at every level of your career, always practice intellectual honesty. Mm-hmm. Intellectual honesty, both to yourself and others, really gains you tons of respect from your colleagues and your organization and allows you to make the right decisions and create the right ideas to bring forth. And it shows your value. Be intellectually honest with yourself and others at every level of your career. And it will it will be great for your career. I would also say, be that fly on the wall. It's the saying, be a fly on the wall. Stick your nose into meetings. Ask your managers, hey, can I sit in on this phone call? Can I sit in on this meeting? Even if you don't have an active role, being a fly on the wall is just a great way to learn things and it's a great way to keep active in conversations and to accelerate the learning process and your growth and for the most part it's costless Mm. it's absolutely costless so that's to me that's a big one and then the last one is is one that is self-evident is just take advantage of every opportunity that that you get presented with and it may not turn into the something tangible or that next rung on the ladder, but take advantage of all the opportunities that get presented to you, whether it's an educational opportunity,
opportunity, a learning opportunity, informational, being part of a project or an action item, getting exposed to senior management and thinking, seeing how they think and, and make decisions. Just take advantage of every opportunity and be present about it. Mm. Don't be absent about it. Awesome. So we'll put these in the show notes, but again, intellectual honesty, accelerate your learning and grab grab every opportunity. What lovely summary there from Steve. Steve has been amazing. We'll definitely meet up when next in the US and traveling around. It'd be great to see you and just guys listening today, connect with him. This is a guy that you can learn from. I know you do a lot of other things with you know, the AFP and you hopefully see you on a stage nearby soon as well. But I've thoroughly enjoyed today. So thank you for your time, sir. Wonderful, Mike. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much. <laughs>